Well, good evening and um, welcome to Gresham College's lecture this evening, which is being held at LSO St. Luke's. Uh, I'm Simon Thurley, I'm the uh, provost of the college and it uh, gives me really great uh, pleasure to introduce the first in this series of lectures about Russian piano masterpieces. And our lecturer is, of course, our Gresham Professor of Music, uh, Marina Frolova Walker, and uh, it's her second year uh, in, uh, in post, and so I'm not going to give her an introduction, but I am going to introduce uh, our pianist tonight, and we're incredibly excited that we've got one of Britain's foremost pianists, Peter Donohoe. He's played in most of the great concert halls with most of the great conductors, and his career has had uh, Russian music at its heart. And I've written down here um, just some of the recordings he has made, and it is really quite mind-boggling. He's recorded all the Tchaikovsky concertos, uh, all the Rachmaninoff preludes, all the Prokofiev sonatas, Stravinsky's music for piano solo, all the Shostakovich sonatas, and probably an awful lot more. But um, it's, <laughs> it gives me really great pleasure um, to introduce this series, and we're looking forward to a really tremendous evening. Thank you. Right. Simon for introducing us and uh, I will begin uh, the first lecture in this series but I'll just say a couple of words about the, the whole uh, series of lectures um, and of course it's, it's a huge privilege to have Peter Donohoe um, collaborating with me on this because uh, the first time I heard him play was in 1982 in Moscow uh, when he was a favorite to win in the Tchaikovsky piano competition and everyone was uh, very excited about it so that even the KGB got worried uh, because they, they seemed that the Russian public should not be paying so much uh, attention to a Westerner. So, uh, yes, and fr from that point, uh, of course, it was a long time ago, and Peter stayed with Russian music, I think, for quite, quite closely to Russian music and to Russian audiences, and recorded uh, all these works that Simon has mentioned. And uh, it's, uh, he recorded basically everything that we're going to talk about it in this series. <laughs> so um, so my, my whole course was influenced uh, by, by his art. So we'll start with Mussorgsky, and uh, of course it's a very famous piece of music, and uh, that painting that you can see here is a painting by Vasily Kandinsky, which was inspired by the last piece um, in this cycle, yeah, which is called The Great Gate of Kiev. But uh, interestingly, it's usually not as famous as the piano or original, yeah, as in the orchestration by Ravel. Uh, and that's very strange for me as a Russian, because I think in Russia it's the other way around. And Ravel is not played quite as much. But I will uh, start by introducing you uh, to the history of the piece. So you can see the uh, title page of the manuscript. And there are three names on it, if you can read Russian, and if you can't, I'll read it for you. So, dedicated to Vladimir Stasov, pictures at an exhibition, reminiscence of Victor Hartmann by Mussorgsky. So, we have three people involved here. Uh, it's uh, Mussorgsky, the, the designer, architect, and painter, uh, Victor Hartmann, and Vladimir Stasov, who was uh, through whom they were introduced to each other, and uh, he was basically um, supporting them both. They were the, uh, his protégés, I suppose. Um, 
Stasov was an incredibly important figure, and I, I suppose we should have them the, the, the right way around. Yeah? So, um, he uh, was an art critic, he was a music critic, uh, he was incredibly influential, and his main idea was to make uh, Russian arts, uh, emancipate Russian arts from Western culture, to make Russia lead the world uh, rather than follow uh, European developments. And uh, so he was trying to persuade both Hartmann and Mussorgsky to do something Russian and national, so develop a Russian style. Now Hartmann, as you can see, was only one year younger than Mussorgsky, but he was already more famous, because Mussorgsky, in the year that we're going to talk about, 1873, the year of Hartmann's death, Mussorgsky was, hadn't yet uh, produced Boris Godunov on stage, yeah, his first opera. So he was still relatively unknown. Hartmann was already an academician of the Academy of Art, and the most uh, famous work that actually was realized of his was the 1870 Russian, all-Russian manufacture exhibition, so for which he created this exotic design. That didn't survive. Uh, this is another piece of his. This is a theater. And you can see his principle. Yeah, he takes a Russian ornament, probably from embroidery or for something small. Yeah, it could be some woodwork. And he blows it up to this, this monumental proportion. So that didn't survive either. What did survive, I'm afraid, is quite <laughs> pitiful. Yes, especially in its current state. It's a, it's a building, residential, uh, sorry, not residential building. It was a printing house, uh, which he built for his patron, Mamontov. And you can see the same principle here. So it's ornament yeah, on top of rather ordinary building. So uh, this is what people said of him. When ordinary things are to be built, Hartman is no good. He needs fairy tale buildings and magical castles. He needs palaces and constructions that must be without precedent. And then he creates astonishing things. Yeah, so uh, because he died so early, he died of a heart failure, he didn't really realize his potential fully. Yeah, so Mussorgsky and Stasov thought he was a kind of genius. And then uh, after his death, which Mussorgsky took very personally, despite not being close to him, he took it very personally, you know, possibly because he identified partly with him and also thought he might not be able to fulfill his potential. He was very conscious of passing time. Uh, and uh, Mussorgsky uh, corresponded with Stasov, and then Stasov arranged this as exhibition uh, in memory of Hartmann. And they collected everything. They collected little sketches and uh, even pencil drawings, basically anything that they could find. And very often people now say, oh, you know, Mussorgsky's music is so much better than Hartmann's paintings. Yeah, but because they, these are really sort of, they're not supposed to be in any order, in any cycle. They were, they were just there to represent as much as possible, yeah, to, to memorialize uh, their friend. So that was uh, 1873. He died, 1874 was the exhibition, and uh, just a few months later, Mussorgsky already completed the piece. And uh, it's incredibly, um, ambitious. I have here on the left the original titles. You can see they're all in different languages. So I've translated uh, them for you here on the right-hand side. And you can see that they very interesting structure. So you have 10, um, ten pieces yeah, which are based on particular images. Not all of them we have of Hartmann. And then we have these promenades. 
and uh, they're varied. So, so you have a, like a cycle of variations built into that suite. Yeah? So you have both things going on at the same time. And the promenade is, is the self-portrait of Mussorgsky walking around the exhibition. The question is, why did Mussorgsky suddenly write this ambitious piece? He had never done anything like that before. And in fact, there's very few ambitious Russian piano pieces before that. You, know, you can think only pro possibly of one, which is Balakirev's Islamay, which was written just a few years earlier. But that's a virtuosic piece. And the rest of, of music that was written in Russia was uh, for the salon, for amateurs. And Mussorgsky himself, he was an amateur pianist. He was very good. Everyone said he was very good. But it, it never seemed to show any ambitions in the piano music. And I think I might have an answer to this question of why it's suddenly the piece for the piano. I think the answer is this. Yes, because in 1873, just a, a few uh, days really before Hartmann died, Mussorgsky received amazing news, astonishing news, that Liszt looked at the, the score of his song cycle, The Nursery, and, and just was amazed and thought that it was a wonderful piece and even thought of dedicating a piece to Mussorgsky or possibly writing a fantasy based on uh, Mussorgsky's themes from The Nursery. It was astonishing. Mussorgsky was still a civil servant. He was working as a clerk in the, in the forest ministry. You know, and suddenly he's got this, this amazing um, reception from Liszt. And uh, so Stasov immediately um, suggested to him that he could go and visit Liszt uh, and uh, even offered to fund his trip. And Mussorgsky didn't go. Yeah, he got cold feet. I don't know what, what happened. It, it was probably a mixture of um, lack of confidence and, and pride. Yeah, so he just couldn't bring himself to go. He said, impossible to Stasov. But uh, the idea of visiting Liszt and possibly building an international career uh, sort of stuck with him and became a kind of uh, idea fix. And, uh, sorry, I'll just read that quote for you. It is as if I can see Liszt, as if I can hear him, as if you and I, he writes to Stasov, are in conversation with him. So I think this is why he wrote the pictures. He was in conversation with Liszt. That's totally speculative, my own speculation, but I think uh, that might be right. Yeah, so I think he wrote it for two ideal listeners, Stasov and Liszt. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about the reception of pictures. Uh, and the amazing thing here is that he wrote it in 1874. And the first piano performance, public performance, was 1896. So it's 22 years later. And it was in Paris, not in Russia. So what happened? Why didn't Stasov send it to Liszt? Why didn't he ask him to play it? Yeah, something really strange happens here, and it's a bit of a mystery. I don't think I have a, an answer. Uh, one answer, potential answer, was given by Mussorgsky's friend, Galinichev Kutuzov, who thought that Mussorgsky didn't like how his friends received the, the, these pieces. They, were, they found them amusing. They laughed. And Mussorgsky thought it was all serious. Yeah, so uh, it might have been this kind of, you know, slight apprehension about how they will be received in the wide world. So he didn't promote them. Stasov didn't promote them. Then he died. Then uh, the first time they actually were heard on the public stage was an, as an orchestration by a Rimsky-Korsakov student called Mikhail Tushmalov, which he did in his orchestration class. And Rimsky-Korsakov conducted it. And I can play you some of that because that's not 
um, as, as well known as Ravel. that the first time it was played was uh, again in a lecture recital so we are very authentic today because that's how it was played the first time uh, in a very special uh, very special series uh, organized by Maria Alenina Dalheim great uh, promoter and supporter of Mussorgsky and the first pianist to play it was Charles actually not Charles, Charles Furster. He was a French pianist of German extraction who was a pupil of Liszt and a celebrity, European celebrity, played for Queen Victoria. Uh, and the first Russian performance was in 1903, and that was uh, another uh, virtuoso, Grigory Beklemyshev, who then became a student of Buzoni. Yeah, so it's quite interesting uh, characters that we don't know anything very much about. And even with all that, yeah, the, the, the pictures took some time uh, to, be, um, to be established. And uh, you can see that Ravel creates his famous orchestration in 1922. Then Horowitz creates his uh, own arrangement where he adds lots of notes um, in various wrong places <laughs> or right places, I don't know. He said he piano-strated yeah, the Mussorgsky cycle. And at the same time, as Horowitz records it in the West, Richter records it in Russia. And Richter was the great promoter of the original piano work. I think we owe it to him that we know it now so well. Um, and uh, uh, he played it more than 100 times in, in concerts and actually s talked about it as the first and finest piano work of, of uh, Russian piano music. Now, uh, I also put here a, a couple of arrangements uh, that, that might surprise you if you don't know. Those certainly surprised me. And I must say, uh, the, the first of them is, by, is a rock uh, arrangement. Yeah, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I wouldn't have known them if I didn't see Peter's Facebook post. So, <laughs> and, so this is, I think, uh, I don't know, Peter, could you play the, the beginning of the gnome, just to, so that we play, could you, <clears throat> you know, do you want to? Well, actually, um, it's the old <laughs> castle that I, I found particularly ah, okay. amusing, if you don't mind. Okay. The old castle being in the original piece, a, a very slow, reflective, rather sad piece, and Emerson Lake and Palmer's version of it sounds, well, let, let me do uh, a tiny bit of the original. So then we have etc. I don't know the notes intimately, but it's something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, well, actually, Gnomus, I, I couldn't possibly emulate what they did with Gnomus. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that. If you play, okay. the, no, if you play the, the original. original. Yeah. From the beginning. Uh -huh. Thank you. 
I think it's very idiomatic, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I have to apologize for this. I, I, I wanted to show this one as well. And, and well, um, credit has to be given to the creator of the video. But this is an interesting thing because people always try to to see what is behind the pictures, yeah, what is being portrayed. So I think Tomita, you saw Aesau Tomita, who, who created an electronic arrangement, was trying to kind of reverse the process, yeah, from rea real life into music, yeah. So he was trying to. Well, That's very good. Uh, <laughs> it is very good, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk now about Mussorgsky's Russian style. Yeah, so something that he was trying to, to create and Stasov was instructing him to up to a point of how to do it. I wanted to start with something else, not even with one of the pictures, uh, with a song. Because Mussorgsky identified so much with the songs that he even signed his name in letters to Stasov sometimes. Savishna, yeah, darling Savishna. So that was like the quintessence of what he wanted to do with Russian music, of his original approach. So this is a song which is not at all a lyrical romantic song for the salon. Uh, it's in fact, you know, its realism is, is so striking that, you know, it's really amazing that it was done in, in 1867. So what Mussorgsky likes to do, he wants to find a character in real life. That was a scene that he witnessed, a character that he witnessed. He wants to um, find a way to reproduce the speech of that character, the way the character speaks in music. Yes, sometimes almost sort of notating it down. So this is what he does. The character here is, is a, a, a mentally impaired villager. Yeah? So he lives an, as an outcast in a village. And this is a confession of love, uh, his confession of love for a beautiful peasant woman. And he knows he will be rejection, rejected. Yeah? So uh, you have this begging intonation. And every single bar is the same. You have this, this begging intonation. And it is in 5-4. Yeah, notice that. This is a very important thing. Yeah, so it's not a march or a waltz, it's in 5-4. In, in and I'll just play uh, you a little bit of how this sounds. <laughs> So if you look at the promenade, which is, of course, Mussorgsky's self-portrait, and it also has this remark, nel modo russico, which is uh, a slightly garbled version of nel modo russo, yeah, which is in, in the Russian manner. Um, you can see that it also has 5-4 at the end, uh, at the start. Yeah? So something about 5-4 that he considered particularly Russian. That has to do with Glinka, and that has to do, um, it's, a, it's a rather long story, and I already told the story in, the, in another lecture about Glinka's A Life for the Tsar, so you can watch that lecture, and I'm not going to repeat myself. But it's not just 5-4 here, yes, also 6-4 and occasionally 7-4. So the whole point that music should be irregular, yeah, it should not be a march or a waltz, which this regularity they associated with the West, and they wanted to distance themselves from the West. 
So uh, it is a, a kind of choral song with solo and then chorus. And very unusual piece, isn't it, Peter? I mean, it's, it's just Incredible. like nothing else. Yeah? I was trying to find something to compare it with. I have a, a, a suspicion that there is some connection with Schumann's Carnival just because the title Promenade is in there. Uh, but also, you know, I, I put another piece of Schumann on, on there, which is uh, from his Opus 12, which is a kind of choral song as well, only that's a German choral song and this is a Russian choral song. But what I, I find uh, striking about it is it's not a pastiche. You, you, find, you can't find a folk song like that anywhere. It's a kind of hyperbole, you know, of, of a Russian song. Uh, and he's trying to imitate various aspects. Uh, for example, yeah, the, the solo chorus contrast or the fact that the, there are different uh, number of voices. Yeah, the voices change. That's what happens in folk singing. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, he sometimes does uh, a very... Um, Western things like going, yeah, the chromatic slide kind of, yeah, E flat, E natural. So something very Western, something that I think Stasov wouldn't have been pleased with because he was a bit of a purist. Um, and at the same time, there is a little bit of roughness, yeah, in that harmony. It doesn't really sound Western at all. No, to me, it sounds religious. Quite, yeah, quite so, religious. so, yeah, po so possibly with some mm. connection with Ru mm. Russian Orthodox singing as well. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you straight away, so um, it says play in the Russian style, and what do you do to play it in the Russian style? Well, I, I agonized over this for a very long time. I've known this piece since I was 17, uh, but actually I didn't play for a very long time. And it wasn't until I came back to it that I started to think about this, this term, this, this instruction. Um, of playing it in the style, of, uh, in the uh, Russian mode, if you like. Um, <clears throat> and I applied it actually to, to music that isn't Russian at all, my, my solution to it, which is it, it came from when I was working with this wonderful conductor who sadly died, but Yevgeny Svetlanov was one of my absolute all-time heroes. And I worked with him quite a lot and discussed this. And uh, it appears that I think it's from the language, which I don't speak, but I... I know enough about it to think that this is true. Um, whenever there's a pair of quavers, as there is at the end of the first bar, for example, but many other times, in a Russian um, song style, because of the language, they take a long time to say, to say or to sing. And, um, and we tend in the West and possibly all over the world other than in Russia, we tend to hurry through them. So, in, in fact, I'm... I hope I'm not taking too much time up. But um, this is a, what I consider to be a fairly standard Western-style performance of the beginning of the piece. As opposed to this. And I, I really realised, actually, that that really doesn't just apply to Russian music. Uh, even, even British music sounds better like that. When the quavers, or whatever the quicker notes are, and it's usually a pair, doesn't really apply to many at once, but just two is enough to isolate it and to be an issue if you go through it. And we, we all tend to do it on the piano. There's something about the instrument that makes it, makes it happen. I think it's probably true of almost all instruments. 
The one that it is not true of is the voice. And that's where most inspiration comes from anyway. So that, that's at, at least half an answer uh, to me mm. of what Mussorgsky is looking for. And of course, Ravel put that, and probably the other people who orchestrated this as well, put that opening uh, single line that doesn't have any accompaniment on a trumpet and with a wind instrument that also benefits hugely from spreading or sustaining at least moving parts like that. Peter, since we started talking, I'll ask you another question. Yeah, and, sure. you know, referring to what I've said about it not being played for such a long time, yeah, and yeah. Uh, being orchestral version preceding, essentially. The, the, so what is so, so unpianistic about it? Why did Horowitz have to hmm. piano straight it? And what are the most unplayable bits? Well, most pianists know what you mean by unpianistic, but I suspect people who don't play the piano don't quite know what it means. <clears throat> it simply means that it's written not really with, the, with ease of instrumental facility in mind. And of course, naturally, we would think of particularly Liszt, but maybe Chopin as well, as pianists who wrote with that facility in mind. So that very often, particularly in Liszt, it's actually less difficult than it sounds. Whereas in Mussorgsky or Brahms, to some degree Beethoven, and many of the composers of the 20th century as well, it's actually considerably harder than it sounds uh, because he's written um, with a much bigger, uh, um, or maybe, maybe an unidentifiable or anonymous sound in mind. It could be a choir, it could be an orchestra. It certainly is not limited to the sound of a piano. And that, I think, then leads to it being unpianistic. Um, it means that what sounds relatively straightforward is actually really awkward. Um, which many pieces are, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, could, could you show something that, I don't know. Uh... Well, those last two bars, for example, on a, on a piano, don't, they don't sound complex, but they actually are physically. And it's, it's like that virtually all the way through the piece, where everything is just slightly um, prone to really obvious wrong notes. That F that's at the beginning of the 6-4 bar, the last one that's up there, could very easily, very, very, very easily be the wrong note because of the way it's written. Which would be slightly embarrassing um, because it's so obvious. <laughs> Whereas in Liszt, that kind of awkward movement doesn't really happen very much. He, he's borne it in mind all the time what is possible on the instrument, and he would avoid something like that. By the way, Marina, I must say, what a fantastic man Lester must have been. He did that, that to other composers all the time. He was so generous, and so many composers owe their fame to Liszt, Liszt and his promotion of, of them. It's, it's really wonderful, and for him to do it across to Russia from where he was, is, it makes me love him even more than I did before. Mm. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I will just go on a little bit <laughs> yeah, please. I'm about sorry. this. So, <laughs> so um, uh, what, what is interesting about the promenade, yeah, that, that it is a self-portrait, and that means that he puts himself into a piece of music. And Schumann does the same in the carnival. Yeah, he actually has two pieces which represent himself. So that's a very romantic thing to do, yeah, to put this subject into the piece. Um, 
But at the same time, the subject is symbolized by something very objective. Yeah, it's a Russian choral song. And then the Russian choral song changes its character every time that it appears, depending on which picture Mussorgsky looks at. Yeah, so we're constantly between this romanticism and realism. <coughs> I made this nice scheme for you to, <laughs> to, to show you how this piece really straddles the two different aesthetics. Yeah, so you have subjectivity, travelogue, fantasy in the supernatural, ruins of the past, like in the old castle, yeah, the image of death, and, and so on. And, and the realist, realism comes in something more specific than that. Everyday scenes, yeah, voices of people, portraits, action, and the present and a lot of humor as well as you have heard. So uh, just remind you uh, a little bit uh, once more yeah, about the, the grand scheme of things and point out yeah, the six languages in the titles. Uh, and also, there are all kinds of notes in the score. Some of them deleted, you know, about Limoges. Some of them not deleted, but in pencil. So there's that as well. So the six languages is titles, subtitles, unused bits of programs, private remarks, world play, word play, and in-jokes that I don't feel I can always uh, understand. And also Stasov's explanations of these pieces, which I'm not even talking about. So there's so much that surrounds this piece and everything is supposed to somehow let us into these pictures and make the message understood. And maybe that's why we need the lecture recital. Yeah? But <laughs> at the same time, um, some of the messages still remain a bit of a mystery. So uh, I will just show some, some sort of slightly controversial things that arise here. So I've mapped out the pictures for you, yeah, so that you can see um, where he traveled. Mussorgsky actually tried to represent the layout of the exhibition. You started with Russia, then Hartmann went abroad to Italy, France, and Poland, which was part of the Russian Empire, and then he goes back to Russia. So partly this is influenced by, by that. But what's the interesting thing is here is that the Parisian pieces, or the French pieces rather, Tuileries Gardens, children at play, lovely urban scene. Uh, Limoges Market, lovely, you know, women chattering about various nonsense. And then you come to, into Russia, yeah, and just as soon as you cross the border <laughs> into Saint-Domingue, you, you pl you're plunged into this very murky depths yeah, of the register. And you have a piece, for example, that is called Boudoir. Uh, and the, the word is, means cattle, yeah, so that's a Polish title. Uh, he also gives us another subtitle, Latelleg, which is humorous, yeah, which is the cart. And, uh, um, and there are all kinds of things that, that make you sort of slightly worry about this piece. For example, the fact that, that the texture seems to me uh, be a kind of parody of Chopin's funeral march. Uh, I don't know whether you'd agree with that. But I do, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at the same time, it's, it's a kind of maybe labor song or something like that. So is it a social commentary? Is it, it's a, is it a portrayal of uh, oppression? Uh, is it indeed a parody of, of, of Chopin? Very difficult um, uh, to, to know. If, if you could just play the beginning of that. Uh, a, a bit later. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
yeah. builds to a massive climax. Could, could I just mention, mm -hmm. Marina, that as you can see up there, it's marked fortissimo at the beginning of the piece. Um, and Ravel's version, in Ravel's orchestral version, he puts the melody on a, on a tuba, which is the most extraordinary um, piece of orchestration. And of course, underneath these heavy double basses and cellos, boom, 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 like this. Um, but he starts quietly. And Marina tells me that that's because he got the wrong edition of the original. Simple as that. And you know, we pianists have agonized over whether, we should, whether that fortissimo was, was a misprint or not uh, for the whole of the time I've been aware of the piece. And it, apparently just simply that. Well, Mussorgsky actually even tells Stasov in the letter, right between the eyes. So he actually describes this. This is how you should feel about the, <laughs> the beginning mm -hmm. of the piece. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, he got this, that Rimsky-Korsakov edition, which for some reason had mistakes. And it's very strange. Rimsky-Korsakov probably didn't look at it because he wouldn't have missed mistakes. And he probably would have changed more, actually, because he always changed Mussorgsky. Mm. Well, the Ravel yeah. version is the, is the version that most non-pianist music lovers would first get to know this piece through, I think. And I, I, I used to play in orchestras myself, and I knew a few tuba players. <laughs> and they always said what a horrifically difficult solo that was. It turns out that it would be a lot easier if it was fortissimo. So Ravel really slipped them a googly there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there is, uh, if, if we look, uh, yeah, I actually was delighted to find a picture of <laughs> Sandomis with that uh, type of cart with huge wheels. Yeah, so mm. if you imagine the picture, we don't have the Hartman picture, but if it, you imagine something like that, you know, huge suddenly. And also, it was a culture shock of a traveler, yeah, who would cross in the Russian Empire and, and the roads are horrid. Yeah, so that might be, I don't know. Uh, another piece I wanted to talk about, uh, basically cannot uh, not talk about, is the Samuel Goldenberg and Schmuley. Um, sorry, I'll just switch it further. Okay. So uh, this is uh, um, these are pictures which you can see, and they're often reproduced in the editions. They're not the right pictures. Um, actually, the, the right one has been identified as Italian peasant resting. <laughs> so, so that shows you yeah, how much um, research still needs to be done. The, the pictures that Mussorgsky um, knew were his, his private property. Hartmann gave it to him. They were pencil sketches, so we don't know what they were like. But he put them together into this scene, into a dialogue between a a rich Jew and a poor Jew, and, and that's all happening in Sandomish. And my uh, colleague, my American colleague, Richard Ruskin, uh, hello, Richard, if you're watching, uh, uh, put forward this, this idea that this is, piece is basically anti-Semitic caricature. Yeah? So that, that idea has become very uh, famous now. Everyone knows about it. And I just wanted to to put a slightly different interpretation forward without trying to exonerate Mussorgsky the man because he did indeed make anti-Semitic comments in his private letters to Stasov and some of them are quite unsavory but then many people did of his circle also at the time. But for Mussorgsky the artist, you know, to, to put something like that into a serious piece of music which as, as I think was intended for Liszt is something that I don't quite believe in. And one way of, uh, of creating this different interpretation, I think, is to look at the part 
for the poor Jew, which has always been described as, you know, this you know, wheedling Jew. So it's, it's a caricature, it's a stereotype. Yeah, it's, it can be perceived as something quite offensive. Now here I have to confess that my husband gave me this idea that in fact this music, you can see it's a very exotic line, it's not a vocal line at all. That it's actually uh, a representation of cymbal, yeah, uh, or cymbalon, which was a protoclasmer instrument which the, the poor Jews would, would have been playing. And once you know this, I think it, it changes everything because then it, it, it creates two Jewish musics, yeah, which are put in contrast with each other and then they're put on top of each other, which of course Russian composers loved doing. It was a great shtick, a great trick to put things together that were originally separate. So, so I mean, I, I leave it out there. I mean, I don't know what you, whether you hear it as a symbol on, but maybe you yes. could play it for us. Actually, very much so, because I also know that Ravel put it on a muted trumpet, which immediately makes it more wheedling. Yeah. So perhaps Ravel assumed that yeah. that was the case, but uh, I don't Possibly. think it was, no. Yeah. But on the other hand, by the way, I think most of the composers of the, of the 19th century in Germany tended to be a little anti-Semitic as well, Busoni and Liszt in particular, and of course famously Wagner. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Well, it, it's just something, you know, artistically different when you know that that might be yeah. the symbol on. I, I don't yeah. know. Um... It continues. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, after that, in the same mode. Okay, well, my final chapter is about the presence of Hartmann in this piece, and this is just by way of introducing what Peter is going to play, because he's going to play the second half of the pictures. So, uh, first, the, the big promenade, yeah, the particularly monumental version of the promenade, then Limoges, um, you know, just to show you this little um, conversation that Mussorgsky made up for the women who were chattering at the Limoges market about the cow and about the dentures and about... And tobacco and you know all these things and then he decided it was too silly yeah, and crossed them out. But something that he didn't cross out was uh, about the next piece, the catacombs, and uh, that's uh, what he wanted in Latin. He uh, assumed that they were, these were the Roman catacombs, but these are catacombs in Paris which are actually not Roman. Um, but he wanted to have this in Latin. The creative spirit of the late Mr. Hartman is leading me towards the skulls. They had the skulls piled up in there. He addresses them and the skulls softly begin to, slowly begin to glow, which I think is a tremolo. <laughs> I think that's the glowing skulls. Mm. And you can hear the promenade here in the minor, yeah, and without its, its characteristic rhythm, uh, that's Mussorgsky contemplating, uh, communing with the spirit of Hartman, uh, Hartman and contemplating uh, his mortality. Uh, the, the picture for that, uh, sorry, just gone the uh, wrong way. So the picture for that is this, and you actually hear, you can see Hartman inside, yeah, the catacombs, and there are the skulls, and they were, they had electric light in there, so the glow was kind of already there. Um, and then you have another shock, and that's uh, Hart on hen's legs, or Baba Yaga. 
And a few things I want to say about it. You know, first of all, the piece is not like the picture at all. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, if you can see that this is a, a clock design and the hand's leg, legs barely visible. The hat and hand's legs actually comes from this uh, funerary practice of the ancient people of the north because the, the soil was too frozen to bury people underneath. Yeah, they would build these houses of the dead for them and place them there away from the predators. And you can see on tall stumps, which remind you of, of hen's legs. But of course, the main, most important thing is the, the witch herself, Baba Yaga, the, the wicked witch of Russian fairy tales, who flies in a, uh, in a mortar and helps uh, uh, herself with a pestle yeah, to propel herself through the air. And I think what is fascinating is that uh, she's supposed to live between the kingdom of the living and the kingdom of the dead. And in Russian fairy tales, she leads sometimes the hero into the kingdom of the dead without him dying. But he uh, can attain magic powers. Yeah? So you can always feel something like that happening to Hartman as, he, as you get to the last piece. But this is this wonderful piece of memoir of Stasov, which I'm not going to read out, but it's about Hartman being dressed as Baba Yaga in a masked ball and sort of running through the room and scandalizing everyone with, with his quite sort of exotic appearance. So I, I think Mussorgsky definitely knew this memoir, or maybe he even knew this story from Hartman. And I think that's, that's Hartman's continues to be present in this piece in this, uh, this uh, flight of Baba Yaga. And we fly into, um, it's almost like a cinematic change, yeah, into, into uh, not into real Kiev, yeah, which, which is different, yeah, but in, into heavenly Kiev, maybe I'm plagiarizing your ideas, basically, about mm -hmm. what happens in this piece, so maybe you can... Well, it's, it's, it's only an emotional is. response of my own. Um, I noticed a long time ago that the piece apart from the old castle maybe, for the first half of it is really quite upbeat. And then there's this movement, that's the, 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 the one that depicts the marketplace in Limoges, which is very suddenly interrupted by the catacombs. Um, and from then on, it seems a very dark, somber, uh, death-orientated piece. And then you have the Great Gate of Kiev. And I, I, whether this is remotely true, I wouldn't know, but it feels to me like the Great Gate is Hartman's ascent to paradise. And I think in most performances, we think of the Great Gate of Kiev at the end as perhaps a little bit of an overblown triumphant ending to a piece that um, doesn't really need it. Um, actually, it does, because if you think of it in those terms, it's, it's really what the whole cycle is actually about. And I think maybe my justification is a little more concrete when I think of what sounds to me like a funeral bell in the middle Mm. that then is, is not superimposed, but whatever the opposite is, underneath the return of the promenade from the beginning of the whole piece. And that, for me, is the most glorious moment of the, of the whole thing. But actually, it's also the most difficult to play, uh, as it happens, which is really very unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but um, th this massive ending then seems such, so, so more, more of a sort of ecstatic um, vision of heaven rather than just an instrumental virtuoso um, triumphant climax. It's a, a very different feel then. Yeah, and of course the, the real kind of Russian Orthodox service going on, yeah, in the quiet bits yes. as well. Oh, that, yeah. Yes, I'd forgotten to say that. Yes, mm -hmm. there is, there's a chorale, which is so obviously choral music, 
Um, well, chorales usually are, of course, but you, uh, it, it so obviously de uh, depicts the sound of a Russian choir. And when you hear people distorting the piece, adding notes, adding westernized harmonies, it really spoils it. I'm not naming anyone, but um, it, it really needs to be as... Uh, and actually, I think it says something, I've forgotten, I'm afraid, what it actually says by the side of that, but it indicates that it should be very cold and without mm. any... Without crescendo. expression, yeah. Uh -huh. Without expression, yeah, yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it's very hard to do that if you think of it in Western terms. But in Russian terms, it actually really does evoke something very special and unique to the country. Mm. Well, I've, I'm going to leave this on the screen. I'm going to invite Peter to now play. Thank you. <laughs> There's something I'd like to say. You'll be very surprised to hear. <laughs> um, the tremolo you mentioned yeah. in the... Yeah in the, um, the final promenade, mm -hmm. which is the, the, the death-laden uh, one, um, is a, a, a wonderful example of a lack of, pian of pianistic writing. It's the longest tremolo I know in any piece that's ever been written. I'm sure that somebody could find one that's longer, but to me it's one of the most in impossibly difficult things to do, is to basically keep a quiet tremolo going for as long as you, you have to. Mm -hmm you start to get a kind of, you get a stitch in your, right, in your right arm if you're not very careful. And then you have to go straight into the, the hut of Baba Yaga, which is quite difficult. So it, it's, it's a real problem to deal with that aspect of the, the lack of pianistic consideration that's in this piece. But my feeling, just to sum it all up, is that it is unique. It had very few antecedents and it certainly doesn't have many descendants. It stands there on its own, this piece. Um, and the, the only thing that I would say is the idea of representing pictures in music is something that the occasional composer did follow, but very few. I'm th I can think of Miroir by Ravel, for example, which happens to be on the same CD, available at all good record stores. Um, <laughs> uh, and also Messiaen with his Van Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus. And Messiaen himself said that Mussorgsky was a great influence on him. Apart from the fact that they're pictures, the only real connection I can personally feel is that both composers start with the letter M. I'm not quite sure there's much else, but I may be completely wrong there. So, um, you'd like me to play this now? Yes, please. Okay. <clears throat> Ravel left out the second promenade of his orchestration. I never, never understood quite why. This is slightly different to the first one, but obviously a return, essentially, of it. I wonder why Ravel thought it was best to just forget about it. And just a thought.
Thank you.